Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hi, welcome to another session here on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. My name is Fleet Mall. I'm your co-host for this session, and I'm really thrilled to be here today with a longtime colleague and friend, Dr. Sam Himmelstein. How are you? Doing great. Honored to be here. Yeah, well, it's great to connect after quite a few years and uh, really been looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. So I'm going to share a little bit about your background and work, and then we'll jump right in, okay? Okay. All right. Sam Himmelson, PhD, is a licensed psychologist and the founder of both Family Spring, a mental health company that leverages technology to serve teens, young adults, and their families who've been impacted by substance use disorder and related mental health challenges, and the Center for Adolescent Studies, an interdisciplinary training institute focused on trauma-informed care, mindfulness, substance use disorder, resilience, and related training for professionals. For over 15 years, Dr. Himmelstein has worked with incarcerated, trauma-impacted, and substance-using populations and has had the mission to help adolescents and young adults thrive by becoming aware of the power of self-awareness and transformation. A formerly incarcerated youth himself, Dr. Himmelstein was privileged to change his life from a path of drugs, violence, crime, and self-destruction to that of healing and transformation. We can learn more about his philosophy, work, and approach through his books, Trauma-Informed Mindfulness with Teens, A Guide for Mental Health Clinicians, Mindfulness-Based Substance Abuse Treatment for Adolescents, a 12-session curriculum, and A Mindfulness-Based Approach to Working with High-Risk Adolescents, his Professional Training Institute, also the Center for Adolescent Studies, and his clinical work at MyFamilySpring.com. All right. So I think it would be great to start off with your background of having been uh, having had your struggles as a as a young person and ended up uh, involved with the justice system yourself, and then somehow transitioning through that to uh, overcome some of those challenges and end up uh, becoming a psychologist and returning to serve uh, people's experiencing similar struggles. So tell us a little bit about that path, if you would. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um... Just in reflecting on kind of my early childhood, I had some tough experiences and I struggled a lot in school and found myself kind of pushing back on authority figures, mainly teachers. And um, unfortunately, I kind of graduated from getting in trouble at school to getting in trouble with the law. And long story short, I was in and out of juvenile hall. Um, and I was really lucky and privileged uh, for a number of reasons. I got in trouble very young, uh, like when I was in middle school. So I didn't mess up high school in terms of academics or anything like that. I had a couple of parents who were just, you know, rocks, you know, as I reflect on it, they never gave up on me. They visited every time they could. And I had some good mentors and therapists who 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 really helped me start to build insight and self-awareness. And that's really where I got into mindfulness and meditation. I was living in a group home actually, and one of the counselors there put me on a book that was kind of a mix between martial arts and meditation. And that's how my journey really started into this work. And I kind of got obsessed with mindfulness and meditation. Well, I got obsessed with meditation and 
learned a lot of different, you know, styles of meditation and ultimately kind of landed on mindfulness meditation and uh, kind of have never looked back since. I I went back to high school. I went to college. I um, studied psychology in college. I found myself volunteering and working with youth programs. And then I went to go get a PhD in clinical psychology. And I really oriented all of my work towards working with all of my papers, all of my classes, all of my internships, all of my jobs towards working with marginalized and incarcerated youth. And and whenever I could, I would bring in mindfulness and ultimately got involved in some programs where we were explicitly that, you know, so that's the short story of why I'm here today and why I do what I do. Well, I'm sure you've learned a lot since and through your training and experience, but it sounds though like through your experience with your parents and some of the mentors you had that helped you uh, overcome your challenges and kind of get your life back on track, uh, that you probably learned a lot right then about what works and what's needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, from my parents, I really learned, you know, showing up predictably, consistently, authentically in a relationship is one of the critical elements of doing this work. And that was mirrored in my relationships with my mentors and counselors and therapists. The one thing that I knew as a kid, even to some extent consciously, but of course, reflecting on it as an adult, even more so, is was that I was lucky to, to, to have some really talented and authentic mentors and adults in my life who I knew were safe. I knew that they were going to show up and be consistent. You know, everybody's a human being. Everybody has bad days, but I knew who they were and I didn't have to tiptoe around them. And I knew ultimately they were there to help me. And that is one of the things that kind of continued to propel me forward. So, yeah, I I reflect on that a lot. And even through all of my professional trainings, I kind of refrain back to those consistent, authentic, healthy relationships that that's, you know, 80 percent of, you know, of what I'm doing and what my staff are doing when we're working with young people who've been trauma impacted who've been incarcerated. And even when we're teaching mindfulness, it's still, we still refrain to the relationship because that's what helps people feel safe enough to, to try a practice like mindfulness or other types of meditation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the social sciences literature is pretty clear on that regarding all kinds of change programs with youth and adults. It's the quality of that relationship, that authentic, consistent relationship has the highest impact, uh, apart from whatever interventions might be offered or any particular program content, it's that relationship that has the highest impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, Tim, we first met uh, when you were working with Mind Body Awareness Project, a great project in Oakland, Alameda County. Uh, when I was involved with them, they were offering programs in the very large uh juvenile detention facility there in Alameda County, and I think maybe a little bit in some surrounding counties. And uh, so tell us a little bit about your work with Mind-Body Awareness, what you learned there. Yeah, uh, the MBA project, as we usually call it, um, that's really where I cut my teeth in this work, I would say, early on. I got involved with them in 2007, I want to say, and early late 2007, early 2008. And um, I was also a grad student. I was going through my PhD at the time. So 
I was getting a lot of clinical training from my grad school and a lot of real world experience from the MBA project. And yeah, like you said, you know, the, the organization works at the time and for a long time worked in multiple counties in the Bay Area, San Francisco, San Mateo, Alameda County, providing uh, meditation based and mindfulness based emotional intelligence services. Uh, to young people who who were incarcerated or um, were out on probation, but had touched the juvenile justice system in some way. And I got a lot of really amazing training experience there and amazing life experience there. Had some really good mentors, people you probably know, and a lot of people in this world know, Vinnie Ferraro, Absolutely. Chris McKenna, you know. Um, and And we, you know, I just, I had some really, really foundational, amazing relationships with the youth that I worked with. I used to run a program. I did my dissertation for grad school through the MBA project. That's what my research was on. We created a a 10 week mindfulness based, you know, program for incarcerated youth. And at the time there was nothing out there at least directed specifically to incarcerated youth. So, um, you know, I was running a group, I was running groups multiple times a week in those units in San Mateo County, for example, for years. And I had some youth that because the unit we were working in was kind of a longer term care facility. Um, I had some youth that I was working with for a couple years at a time and just grew really, really great relationships. Of course, they were professional, but they were still very authentic and had some young people in there really opening up their hearts and and, um, you know, going deep in the practice, you know, people ask me all the time about specifically about meditation sometimes in the work. And I always tell them like, you can, you can do it. You just got to build the relationship and help the young people you're working with really apply it to their life so that it's a real thing. It's not just kind of abstract practice. And, uh, you know, I was working with youth where sometimes we would do 45 minutes sit, you know? Um, so it was really, really foundational there. And I, uh, the last thing I'll say about it is, uh, like I said, I, I really, I learned a lot about myself when I was with MBA because I had almost every job you could have there. I was a meditation instructor. I was a research director. I was a program director for almost two years. I was the executive director. Um, so it was a really, really phenomenal time and a big growth period for me. And I'll always reflect on that time positively. And I'm still in touch with the organization, the person who runs it now. Uh, I was supervising him for him to get his clinical hours. And so I always kind of keep the ear to the ground with, with, with that organization. They're still doing a lot of really good work. It's a great, great, great project, great organization. I, I'll never forget uh, when I was able to go into the juvenile facility there in Alameda County with Benny and Chris and some of the others. and. Just the way they connected with the youth was just really, really fabulous. And you could see what an impact it was having. So I know in your work with marginalized youth and, and youth that have been placed at risk and are challenged, and uh, a lot of that is focused around addictions and substance use disorder. So I wonder if you could talk about that and and how, you know, obviously there's going to be all kinds of other uh, contributing factors, but how does that play out in terms of how it sets youth up for failure in life or real challenges or, or for getting involved in the justice system and so forth? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, for, for people who are in the field, this is probably not a shock, but I think it's still good to start with the basics. 
you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of the, the listeners of the summit will have probably heard the term self-medication at some point. And that's what a lot of the young people that we work with are, are struggling with. Some people use drugs and alcohol recreationally, like that's, that's okay. And that's a, that's a real experience. But a lot of the young people we work with are addicted to opiates or they use cannabis daily or they use alcohol daily. And oftentimes they're using it to kind of mask an experience or a number of experiences they've had. Um, The unfortunate aspect is, you know, to some extent it works. You know, they've dealt with so much trauma in their lives. They've they've been shot. They've shot others. They've lost people in their lives. They've witnessed domestic violence. You know, all of those things. That's just scratching the surface. And they turn to drugs and alcohol because it helps numb them or it gives them some type of an escape. And that's a lot of what we see in the work that we're doing. So we're not, you know, there's an old guard in mental health treatment of like substance use treatments over here, mental health treatments over here. And that is not really authentic to to how to actually do this work. And the evidence base doesn't support it. It's all there. Like substance use treatment is mental health treatment. It is trauma treatment in in many respects, at least, at least for people who are trauma impacted. And, um, you know, for us, what we're doing in there, of course, like we were just saying, the relationship is so critical, whether you're a a case manager, mentor or licensed therapist, that, that relationship is still so critical to get somebody to even feel, have the thought of feeling comfortable of opening up about some of those tough experiences they've been through and then really learning to gain, you know, start to develop insight on why am I using, you know, how is this getting in the way in my life? You know, I was in, I was in Alameda County Juvenile Hall just, uh, what's today, Thursday, a couple days ago. And somebody was talking about how they're really starting to have some big insights about how drugs and alcohol are really getting in the way of their relationship in their life, just with their family members. And so, you know, we're doing a lot of interdisciplinary, you know, integrative therapy. Mindfulness is a big part of that because, um, you know, at a really base level, when people are using to self-medicate, you know, as opposed to trying to have a spiritual experience or something like that, when they're using to self-medicate, they're in some way taking themselves away from themselves and putting up barriers to to present moment authentic awareness. You know, they're trying to get away. They're trying to escape in some way. So what we do is we, you know, through our curriculum and through our therapy is we we try to help them, you know, step by step and a little at a time, of course, but be more present and learn to learn to be with self and learn to you know, not to judge and to be less reactive. And of course, as you know, and as the listeners know, that's a practice and it takes training. And so that's, that's mainly what we're doing in there. And um, the Alameda County Juvenile Hall, that's, that's the, the, the juvenile detention center that I was incarcerated in about, probably about 25 years ago at this point. And it's, it's quite, it's a trip and it's an honor to, to have a contract through our company, Family Spring, to go back in there to that same facility and do this work, you know, the work is, the work is, it's challenging at times for sure, but it's very rich. Wow. What, quite a journey you've been on. And it's so wonderful that you're, you're bringing everything you've learned back in to support uh, the young people struggling in similar ways that you were, you know, you were talking about self-medication and as we know, our culture is really oriented in that way. And we're all exposed to all kinds of messages around self-medication 
and uh, pain avoidance and so forth, the slightest discomfort really, and we're encouraged to involve some sort of self-medication, whether it's food or substances, medication, whatever it might be, digital activity. And so, I mean, youth are all really set up for this today. And then there's so much, uh, you know, overdiagnosis of, of conditions like that have been labeled ADHD, things like that, and often over medication there. So a lot of youth, young people that are set up to be involved with medication and self-medication. And, and then, as we know, uh, depression and anxiety are endemic in our society, endemic among youth. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you know, these issues of, of anxiety and depression, how they're intermingled with with addictions. And uh, uh, and then, you know, the danger of this leading into, into you know, suicidality and, and overdoses and, you know, the really terrible outcomes that can happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, generally, I mean, you hit it on the head. It's uh, most people. A lot of a lot of people and especially a lot of young people who are struggling with substance use, there's usually something else going on. It's it's not happening in a vacuum. Uh, a lot of the youth we work with, that's trauma, right? Complex trauma, some type of developmental trauma. But we also, you know, run programs in the community. We have private clients as well. Not everybody we work with is in the juvenile hall. And so you know, sometimes it's not trauma, sometimes it's depression, sometimes it's anxiety, but there's usually some kind of core mental health issue that's going on. And the substance use is the is the kind of the behavior that they're implementing to try and deal with it. And you're absolutely right. I mean, anxiety, depression, trauma, ADHD, like um, trauma isn't diagnosed to not enough, but ADHD is overdiagnosed because some of the, some of the symptoms overlap with what we're seeing and what, you know, with people with post-traumatic stress disorder and complex trauma. But, um, you know, a lot of those diagnoses, when they, when, when, when individuals start to dip and their mental health continue, continuously goes down. For example, I worked with a lot of youth who, when the pandemic started, they got more depressed, they got more anxious, their trauma got more exacerbated. When that happens, they are at risk for more, you know, severe behaviors. Sometimes that can be suicidal ideation or suicidality if they dip and, and they're more kind of on the spectrum of self-harm. Sometimes it could be uh, more violence in the community because I had one youth tell me not too long ago that when the pandemic hit, violence rose because everybody was allowed to wear a mask in the community. So nobody knew who each other, uh, who each other were. And so, um, uh, as mental health symptoms get worse, oftentimes youth are at risk for those sorts of things, whether it be suicidality, violence, what have you. And oftentimes drug use and alcohol use are rising in accordance with that. Well, I want to circle back to talking more about trauma and, and then trauma-informed approaches to this work and to, and to teaching and offering mindfulness practice. But you mentioned the pandemic. I'm curious about uh, since the lockdowns began in, in spring of 2020, how you've seen that impact uh, this work. Many of the uh, prisons and juvenile facilities have been have shut their doors to outside volunteers or even contractors coming in in many cases. It's, perhaps it's starting to open up again now, but, but I, I'm just wondering what you've seen in terms of this work, in, whether it's inside facilities or other ways in which, uh, you know, 
we're trying to support uh, at-risk and marginalized youth and others, how the pandemic has impacted that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was actually in the California State Faci- Youth Detention Facility, which is the state level, the CDCR. I was in there on the day they shut it down for, for COVID. I was doing a mindfulness workshop and uh, they basically, we were there doing a day long and they basically kicked us out in the last segment and said, we probably shouldn't let you come in today. And that was the beginning of the, of the shelter in place and lockdown. And yes, a lot of people, a lot of organizations had to just deal with either cutting services or shifting to online, to Zoom, to telehealth. And that was a difficult move for us and our programming. Uh, there were a couple of COVID outbreaks in the juvenile detention centers that we work in. So, you know, we were providing services in person. We were, you know, compliant, all masked up and everything. Then when an outbreak would happen, we'd have to go to telehealth. And it's very difficult to facilitate a group in telehealth when all the all the young people are in physically in the room together and the facilitators on camera. It's a little bit easier to do one-on-one work. And so that's kind of how we manage it, how we kind of shifted and moved throughout it. Um, now we're back in person, but it was very difficult. And the unfortunate thing is, you know, the people who suffered the most were the young people, the clients, the people we were working with, because they got their services cut at a time where their mental health system symptoms were getting exacerbated. Stress was rising. These are people who are incarcerated, so they don't generally at least have access to the same amount or types of drugs they would have on the out, on, on, you know, on the outs to cope with it. And so it, it was just kind of a recipe for a lot of chaos. And, you know, I, I myself and I would tell my staff, you know, we just we kind of got to roll with it and and show the institution, just like we would build a relationship with a young person, show the institution that we're going to be there. We're going to be consistent. We're going to roll with the punches, so to speak. And that's what we did. And But it, it was tough. And, um, you know, I I'm a believer in telehealth. Like, I think good, I don't think it's as good as in person, obviously, um, as somebody who, who has done this work for a long time. Uh, but I, I think it's better than nothing. And I do think it's going to be here to stay. I think with juvenile detention centers and adult prisons, we have to work a little bit better with the administration to figure out how this can actually work longer term to deal with whether it's a COVID outbreak or whatever, you know, if, if something else comes along, you know, um, so it's not caught up to like where Zoom is, where me and you can just hop on right now because facilities just don't have the bandwidth or the tech set up to do it. But I do know that's changing and I'm hopeful for it. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, it's been a struggle, but we've still been able to do our work. And, you know, my, my kind of messaging to my staff and to other providers and other volunteers is when things happen, you just got it. And, and I know you know this, but like when you're working in a prison or a juvenile detention center, a, a lot of the work is going in there, having your agenda, knowing that you can go in and your group's just not there. There's somewhere they're not supposed to be or they're doing some other activity and you just kind of got to roll with it and go with the flow. And we did that kind of on a large scale when it came to the pandemic and COVID and, and are still you know, from time to time dealing with it. Absolutely. And I think the prison mindfulness organizations and projects all over the country have been, have been going through that same journey. And 
you know, I think you and I agree there's no substitute for in-person programming and, and for, for the ability to create that consistent, authentic relationship. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but yeah, during the pandemic, uh, through, you know, prison mindfulness, uh, our executive director, uh, uh, Vita Pyrus has been, um, offering the path of freedom program over zoom in a maximum security, South Carolina prison mm. and, uh, in a, a New York County jail for both men and women. And, uh, you know, we all never thought that would be possible. First, we never thought they'd allow it. And then we thought it'd be really hard to do. But it is happening and it is hard to do. It's not as it's challenged. There are a lot of challenges compared to being in person, uh, but it's happening. And I think, you know, a lot of us are seeing that, you know, coming out of the pandemic, there's going to be a kind of hybrid feature to how programs are delivered, going back to in person, but also a lot of online stuff. And also what we're seeing in the world of corrections is a reliance on secure tablets like these computer tablets. There's some big companies marketing this to the correctional systems where they provide them with these tablets that the uh, the incarcerated persons can then use uh, in some cases to, to uh, do uh, like FaceTime with their family, filling right. their charge for that, um, but also to access educational programming and books and so forth. So we're actually in the process of getting some of our, pro well, we have one of our programs that's Path Freedom. We actually didn't realize how the reach of it yet, but it's reached 36,000 prisoners through one one program like this. But now we're working with some of the other companies. So that seems to be a wave of the future. And, you yeah. know, it's I have mixed feelings about it because, you know, in some ways, once, you know, because prisons are and correctional facilities are so security focused, they don't like bringing in books because they're afraid things will be smuggled in with books. And, you know, and they're all, they're always a, a little bit allergic to the outside altogether. Right. So, right. you know, the more they can have these secure, you know, tools maybe it's going to create barriers to doing the in-person work or to getting the good books in, in people's hands and so forth. So I'm just curious about your feelings about where all this is going and what you've seen so far. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, similar thing, like out here, even in the juvenile detention centers, they're moving towards, um, you know, tablets. Uh, a lot of the adult prisons have tablets and some people I grew up with who are actually doing time. I've, I've FaceTimed with them because they have their tablet now, you know, um, and, and I feel very similarly. I'm mixed about it. I think there's definitely some positives uh, as somebody in our company, Family Spring, we're creating some technology and some applications that can be adjunctive to treatment and, and can help treatment. But the way we frame it, and this kind of sums up my mixed feelings about tech in general is, um, you know, we're, we're not creating an app to replace a therapist. We're creating an app that is backed by a therapeutic relationship, a real human being relationship. So, you know, do I think it's a net positive that, there's, you know, 36,000 people who can access your program through their tablet and hear meditations by you and your instructors. Like, absolutely. I think that is a wonderful thing. You know, I will vote for that any day of the week um, because there's going to be some young, there's going to be some young people and some adults in the system who are motivated enough to practice those meditations, to gain insight and to, and to have some transportation. You know, would I choose that instead of you going in and running those programs? No, I would I would do I would try to do both, you know. So that's kind of my feelings about these applications and tech moving forward. We're really trying to develop tech 
you know, that's backed by human relationships because you probably know this, the listeners probably know this. I, I have almost every mindfulness app that you can have on my on my phone just because I like to experiment with them. If I recommend them to people, I like to have personal experience with it. And just like any other app, you know, it just becomes background noise and it becomes background noise and something you have on your phone that you don't actually use because it's just an app. And we know as human beings that it's a piece of technology. But when it's backed by a real person, when we're meeting weekly and I say, hey, I'm going to you know, assign you this meditation in the app and, and we're actually going to talk about it next week and, and let's dissect it and you know, kind of unearth you know, the pros and the cons of it. And if it was helpful to you, that's a real relationship that's backing the, tech, tech, uh, the technology. So uh, that's kind of my feelings on the situation. I think we're moving in the right direction. I think we need people like us, like actual service providers who are in those boardrooms when that tech is getting developed so that um so that we can ground the work in the relationship and ground it in that human connection because there is a movement particularly in the mental health field to towards wellness and apps and and ai that is you know in my opinion and this for another conversation but missing the mark a little bit you know so yeah, I actually have a colleague that's developing a kind of AI-driven database uh, business that provides really wonderful practices. I mean, they're really cool, wonderful stuff, big library of stuff. And, you know, it, it may be a good adjunct, but I think the important is seeing these things as adjuncts right. to in-person therapy. And, you know, I think that's our time. I mean, we've learned that, you know, we're negotiating with some companies now, but we may be able to get some of our programs in front of, you know, hundreds of thousands of incarcerated persons uh, and uh, we could never reach that many people with in-person programming. Uh, right. But at the same time, uh, our, um, so right. we're wanting to do that, but uh, but our, our already existing strategy, which we're going to continue and try to do even more, is training as many people as we can around the country to go into the facilities with these programs. So the ideal yes. situation will be where we have volunteers or contractors going into a a facility to deliver a program and those prisoners have, have access maybe to a similar program on this tablet. And then the two can create a nice synergy. That would, that would be the ideal situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I want to circle back to trauma. So, you know, a lot of the things you, you mentioned, you know, whether it's substance use disorder, ADHD, uh, you know, obviously PTSD, but all kinds of other things, anxiety, depression, suicidality, it's all trauma based. I mean, we know that today, this stuff just doesn't arise out of anywhere. And even when people think there's a, you know, a, a kind of chemical imbalance in the brain that's related to certain uh, mental disorders, it's all, it's all trauma based. And, and so um, I know your work is uh, trauma informed and you do research around that. So I, I wonder if you could say something about principles of, of bringing mindfulness based programming into facilities or working with marginalized youth in a trauma informed way. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a big passion of mine and, and we've, we've kind of covered, you know, I would say the, the first pillar of that already, which is it's, you know, to, to do things in a trauma informed way is to hold the relationship 
high in, in highest regard and to um, not focus, not over focus or over rely on any one technique. The base of the pyramid for direct service work from a trauma informed perspective is the relationship. And what that really means is creating trust, creating emotional safety. Uh, as you know, and your listeners probably know too, you know, trauma is marked by chaos. It's marked by disintegration. And so one of the remedies for that is consistency, predictability, and, and consistent and predicti- predictable, authentic relating uh, can be very healing in and of itself. So that's the base in terms of the work. But also from a practice standpoint, too, it's oftentimes minor adjustments to the practice to make sure, you know, that it's that you're not actively contributing to a possible triggering of somebody. And these are things that probably a lot of people here already do, but it's just good to have a framework for it. Like, for example, you know, um, inviting somebody to close their eyes when they meditate, but certainly not mandating it and, and literally telling them it's okay to keep your eyes open. From a trauma perspective, it's, it's very simple. How do we assess our environment to know that we're in a safe place? Well, biologically, evolutionarily, we do that by looking around to see, is there a bear that is about to attack me? Is there somebody across the street who's about to attack me, right? So doing something as simple as, you know, inviting people rather than mandating them to close their eyes, but letting them know it's totally okay to keep them open is trauma informed. And also, I, I think really the the core of it is the facilitator going in understands that when things come up, when somebody is resistant to meditation or they, you know, crack a joke right before you're about to do a meditation or something like that, to learn to interpret that type of resistance as protection, you know, people are oftentimes trying to protect themselves and to not take it personally. And I teach my staff to, to really, and this of course is a practice, it's much easier said than done, but to step outside of their ego and to just meet people where they're at. And over time, you will be able to, you know, to, to, to promote the practices a lot more. Um, but it's other things too. It's making sure you're not, you know, first time you meet somebody, if, if you know they have or have a sense that they have a trauma background, you know, we're, we're probably not doing a meditation for 10 or 15 minutes. We're probably starting with just a couple of minutes just to kind of assess, just to make sure it's not triggering their physiology and their trauma responses uh, because it's going to be very difficult for them to be present with self if their neurophysiology is telling them don't be present with self, you know, go into fight, flight or freeze because you're in a situation that warrants that. So it's having that understanding. It's meeting people where they're at. It's holding a relationship in high regard. And it's just some very minor shifts in practice in terms of what I like to call meditation logistics. Like, you don't, you know, when we go sometimes, if you're going to the more spiritual route and you're learning meditation, you know, in a Zen temple, for example, you have a particular way to sit and they have a very particular way of doing things, which can be wonderful. Right. But when we're delivering secular practices in a, in a meditation, in a, in a prison or in a youth facility, oftentimes we're planting seeds and hoping to nurture those seeds over time. So we're not necessarily saying you got to sit in a certain way or doing anything that 
would, at least especially for, for teenagers and young people who are incarcerated, doing anything that might produce more resistance, you know, as simple as like, I don't want to close my eyes and I don't want to sit in a certain way. And now I'm not going to listen to anything else you got to say, you know, because that doesn't fly with me. So it's really meeting them on that relational level and just kind of taking it step by step, taking it slowly with the practice. And, and and this is just, I'm just talking about meditation. There's so many different ways to bring in the mindfulness practice, as you know, that's even beyond the world of meditation. Um, but those, that's what comes top of mind right now. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I love the way you kind of reframe the resistance as protection, because yeah. often resistance can be a mentor and I mean, a misnomer, I mean, because, uh, you know, what we're really seeing is somebody taking care of themselves right. and, uh, and keeping themselves safe and, and, uh, and kind of warding off a further kind of sense of powerlessness or being disempowered. Right. And Absolutely. so, uh, you know, if we can learn to just see that as information, like right. this person is communicating something to us. And then also have, have the, you know, rather than even if we do think of something as resistance, you know, have being traced, well, what am I doing to contribute to that? Right. Right. You know, how can I shift what I'm doing? Not, and certainly not to exacerbate it more, but not to create it in the first place. Right. So, yeah, I think I think that reframing the whole concept of resistance is really helpful. Absolutely. I, I had a I had a, a staff once a long time ago. Actually, this was when I was working at NBA who that exact thing manifested. And I was training them to think of it that way because he came up to me one day and he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting disrespected as the facilitator in the group. And I said, Oh, tell me about that. What, what are you feeling as disrespect? And he said, they won't close their eyes. And I said, well, you know, would you want to close your eyes if you were in a group with 10 people, some of which were opposing gang members that if they were out in the streets, it would not be a safe environment. And so I just started to get him to really think step by step of the resistance itself is that wired protection and exactly what you said it's information in the and when you start seeing it as not just something to get rid of but actual information about a human being about how they're viewing the world and how they're trying to protect themselves when you start seeing it that way then there's a huge opportunity to work with them over time to help them develop that insight and self-awareness and then be able to choose, is this how I want to show up in life? This is my superpower, but it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes the sword's facing outward, sometimes the sword's facing inward. And that is some of the deepest mindfulness and, and kind of insight-oriented practice that I've personally done with mm -hmm. clients and with adults and with youth. Um, and it's just that simple shift of, you know, this resist, it's quote unquote resistance, it's protection. And it's not about me. If I was here, if, if another facilitator was here, this would most likely be happening as well. Well, of course, at the same time, I can contribute to it and I can do things to exacerbate that resistance. So I want to have that kind of awareness of self when I go in and try to kind of look at things from a meta perspective and step out of my own ego as much as possible, because you, you know, this and, and probably a lot of your uh, volunteers and, and folks in this field know this, especially working with incarcerated youth or with youth in general is very easy for an adult to go into, you know, authoritative mode. I'm the facilitator. I'm the adult. I should be listened to. And that's really a position that's, you know, 
solidified within the ego that we got to step out of sometimes because it's easy to get in those resistance traps, you know, but I I'll, I'll stop. I could talk about resistance all day. So. <laughs> well, no, I think this is so important because if we're talking about doing trauma informed work, like there's all kinds of, you know, techniques to where you can adjust to more invitational language and using right. present participle and getting having permission. There's all these kind of things we can do as well as our understanding of trauma sensitivity, but making that fundamental shift to get off our own agenda and to yeah. really shift into deep listening and, and really seeing everything that's coming, you know, from whoever we're working with is just human beings communicating to us how we can be helpful to them. Right. And, and instead of t- interpreting things like resistance or, or getting our own ego involved, you know, that we're, re- I think that's really the, the deep ground that you're pointing to of, of uh, the trauma informed work. And, and while we're on this topic, I just uh, want to go just a little further with this. So working with young people, um, you know, yes, I think, you know, most of them have been experienced powerlessness so much their whole lives. And, you know, so, you know, if we step into that authoritarian kind of parental role, we're liable to, liable to create all kinds of resistance. Right. And we're just going to do that out of our own defensiveness. Right. Anyway. Right. And, uh, you know, that can happen to any of us. We're not sure what to do. It's not working. You know what's going on here. I'm just, you know, so but uh, at the same time, while we need to be in that really agenda free, listening, trauma informed mode. Right. Um, we do need to show up with some. I don't know what the right term is a certain kind of strength or presence or confidence, or you're not going to get young people even pay attention to you, right? If you don't, if you, if you come in a really passive way, uh, you're not likely to get their attention. So sometimes, you know, uh, it's not like becoming authoritarian, but sometimes you do have to bring in a little bit of strength or, or presence or something to get their attention. I wonder if you can speak to that. Yeah, I think the the thing absolutely that's very very true. And I think as somebody who in my training business, I'm training people to do these types of programs. Um, the the word that comes to mind for me that you said was confidence, and you probably know this from experience on both sides of the wall and the people you've trained going particularly into detention settings. Youth and adults do not want to work with people who they think are scared of them. Mm-hmm. And so they can smell that out, whether that's passiveness or just being intimidated or whatever. So confidence is really, really critical. And I tell people confidence comes from two places. It comes from doing your work and your training and your prep. Like if you have, you know, the best people who run these programs, whether it's, you know, my MBSAT program or or your path to freedom program, they've done their homework enough to where they don't have to like continuously go to a piece of paper and be like, okay, what am I supposed to do next now? They've done that. Right. And then the other place is the experience. They go in, they see the people they're working with as human beings. They're not afraid to project confidence. And I do, I think presence and strength are other words that you've said that I relate to as well. Um, particularly for young people, particularly we, we work with young men and young women, but I, of course, in the juvenile detention center, it's like 90% young men and particularly working with young men. They, um, they really gravitate towards that, that kind of authentic 
presence and strength that's not domineering, that's not too authoritarian, because that's what they're getting with the guards, right? Uh, but somebody who's, it, there's a consistency to it. And I do think that comes from confidence. So I tell people all the time, you know, it's okay if you're starting and you're like, I don't have, there's a difference between I'm not confident versus I don't have a lot of experience in this work. If you're just starting off, for example, and you've never went into a juvenile detention center, it's okay to say, I don't have a lot of experience and I'm about to learn new things. But if you go in there and you tell yourself, and, and if you start acting non-confident and you're too passive, you're absolutely right. Like part of it is we do have to get their attention. We do have to show them that we're serious in the sense that we're we're going to show up consistently over and over and over again. And we're not just, we're not babysitters, not just going to do nothing, you know? And that comes through as you project that confidence and, um, um, and they, you know, it's kind of like it is it is there is like a little bit of an ineffable quality around it but one of the things that i think is happening is when you do that you again going back to the consistency and the authenticity it's you're showing them hey you're looking them in the eyes so to speak and you're showing them you know i'm here and i want to know you you know what i mean i want to get to know what's up with you who are you what what your life is about what's on your heart you know and that's the type of confidence where it's like wow for some youth of course that's intimidating and that's where the resistances come up right and that's normal uh but for other people and and even for that you know for the youth that get intimidated over time it's dang this person wants is giving me the time of day when's the last time an adult has done that for me you know coming from the youth perspective mm -hmm. and so that type of experience when you have that over and over again will lead to more and more confidence and your confidence in the ability to know and th this is one of my favorite experiences it, it, but somewhat difficult too it's when i work with a young person sometimes i meet people for the first time and the vibrations are already there. And it's like, you know, handshake, hug, great to meet you. We're going to have a great working relationship. But other times I work with, you know, and this is a, an experience I value even more to some sense. In some sense, it's they're like, hold on, I don't know you, you know, and I'm not about to open myself up to you. And I'm, and I'm in my mind, I'm telling myself, okay, this is where we are. And that's totally normal. And it's totally okay. And the person, the, the individual is going to have their protection up for a while because they need to assess and figure out if I actually am what I say I am, which is an emotionally off, uh, safe, um, consistent, predictable adult in their life. And for me, knowing that that's a process and having that confidence that that's a real human being. They're protecting themselves and I'm here to stay. I'm here to build this relationship with them, which will look different with everyone. You know, that's the piece for me that helps me go in every time I go in with kind of that, that confidence, that strength, that presence of, you know, really at the end of the day, like the, the meta communication is, Hey, you know, I want to know you, you know, and whatever it takes to know you, um, I'm willing to sit in that fire with you. You know, um, so I kind of went on a tangent there, but that's I, I think what, yeah. what you're saying is really true. And that's the paradox, right? It's like we're not trying to be authoritarian or, or too authoritative. We're not like do this, don't do that. Right. But we're also not going in there kind of with a meek attitude of, you know, whatever you guys want to do. It's cool. Right. It's like, no, we you know, I tell my staff all the time. It's like we're it's a dance and there's a paradox, but we do want to teach those skills because 
the the proficiency comes through the practice and we want to help them move along so that they can have the experience of you know going from like oh i don't know about that mindfulness stuff i don't think that works to wow i actually have been trying it and i'm getting some real life experience from it you know some results so so yeah it's very very important to to have that kind of that inner strength and that confidence well, that's incredible. If it was a tangent, it was an incredibly valuable one because we're getting a master class in, in here on how to do that work. And and this is so valuable for anybody doing work, whether they're really it apply. A lot of it applies to working with adults as well course, uh, who are incarcerated. So, uh, you know, and a lot of this we learn through experience. And uh, and anybody who's been doing prison work for a long time, you know, is learning things to experience. If they if they're if they're a learner by nature and have that kind of humility, we're going to be learning. And and we we begin to understand what works. We see what works. And and you know, a lot of times people in the field, uh, you know, the, whether volunteers or professors in the field, don't don't really feel you know like they need somebody to do research to show them what what actually works. They kind of know what works. But on the other hand, the research is really important to support programming, to create buy-in for programming, to get the system to open up to more programming. So research is really important. And also we can learn things about doing what we do better through research. There's no question about that. So uh, I know you've published quite a few papers on your work. And, and I remember quite a while back, you published kind of a review of the literature summary of the current state of, of meditation research. That was way back in, I think, in 2010. Right. And overall, there's been nowhere near enough research done on mindfulness in prison, whether with youth or adults. And, uh, and so I'm curious about your thoughts about the current state of the research and, and kind of where it needs to go, what we're learning, what more we could learn, and just the value of trying to uh, support uh, getting more quality research done on on mindfulness-based uh, work with youth and adults? Yeah. I mean, generally, I would say research has, you know, in the mindfulness world has continued to to grow just in terms of like working with youth and adults, particularly in clinical populations. Mm -hmm. um, it's it unfortunately i don't think it's grown that much particularly in the in the incarceration and in the, in the detention world mm -hmm. the paper you were mentioning that i published in 2010 i did that when i was in grad school because i was so interested in just meditation in general and i you know did everything i could do to write this review paper on um you know the current state of what was going on in prisons and there, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I, I, I hesitate to say, but it's not a great paper in the sense that there is a lot of limitations to the research, right? Like I wish it could have told us more. And, um, I, I review that in, 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 you know, going over some of those studies. Um, and I don't, I haven't stayed up to date with every single paper that's come out. Mm -hmm. But I know, you know, I know that there's some good work happening, you know, in different research labs. I know Amishi Ja at the University of Miami, she's done a lot of research that some of it has been on incarcerated youth with some of her partners. But in terms of mass scale, there's still not a lot happening. And part of it is because um, 
And I think I even mentioned this in that review paper. I definitely mentioned it in my dissertation when I did like my real world uh, um, experience to doing to doing research in an institution. It's just difficult to do research in institutions. The gold, st- you know this, the gold standard still in empirical research, which I could go on a tangent about how this is not the only way, but still it's randomized clinical trial or a weightless clinical trial. And so a lot of administrators in prisons and juvenile detention centers who don't have the research background will ask very logical questions around like, why would you want the waitlist group or the control group to not get the service? They always say, I know all those kids in the control group. They need the treatment. They need the service, you know? So you run into these very real world kind of grassroots issues when you try to take research into a prison. And so what we need to do is kind of step out of the paradigm of this post-positivistic, you know, randomized clinical trial only type of mindset. Not saying we shouldn't design high level studies. We should. We should try our best. But, but, but partner with the institutions in a way where we can get the best data and have the best relationship and still keep the clinical ethics in the highest regard. Or if you're not a, cl- a licensed clinician like me, still keep the, the program, the service in the highest regard. The first aspect and the first intention here is to help people. The second intention is to look at the results of the studies. And I think if more people, uh, researchers took that approach. And, and I would say people generally in the qualitative side of research have more experience with partnering with gatekeepers and, and saying, how can we do this? And let's come to some kind of middle ground. Whereas people who just think of things in post-positivistic terms, and it's got to be the randomized clinical trial or nothing, uh, they don't get as far with some institutions. We got to have some middle ground. I think there would be more research and we need more research because um, incarcerated youth, incarcerated adults who are coming back into the community we want to be able to do long-term studies and see, hey, if somebody really develops this practice and they're, and they're proficient and they have a practice, you know, and it's impact and they say it's impacted their life. Does that help them stay off drugs? Does that help them stay out of prison or stay out of jail or stay out of juvenile hall? That's the next level of evolution um, that I think we need because even the research that I've done for all of my programs, whether it's been MBA or my mindfulness-based substance abuse program, um, they're all limited because we're just dealing with, you know, I mean, and it's great in the sense that, you know, we can show that the programs had an effect in 10 weeks or 12 weeks or something like that. But what about, uh, what about the longer term effect on their life? That's where I think the research really needs to go. And, and like I said, in the adult and youth world, mindfulness and MBSR have really, there's been a lot of studies on them. And even in the clinical world, there's been a lot of studies on different types of, you know, dialectical behavioral therapy or acceptance and commitment theory therapy or other types of mindfulness-based therapies that interact with therapy in general to help clinical populations. But we're still not that much farther along than we were in 2010 um, in terms of working, you know, good quality research with uh, with incarcerated populations. So that's where I think it, it really needs to go. Yeah, Sam, you made so many good points there. And, and it's the longitudinal research that we really need to do to understand the long-term impact of mindfulness-based programming. And it is really challenging, really hard. And and you're right, the research has exploded in the, in the outside community, in the mindfulness world, the mindfulness-based therapies of all kinds. And, and uh, 
But unfortunately, with the prison work, I mean, we've we've made several attempts, like four or five attempts to get an NIH grant to do a randomized clinical trial on the Path of Freedom program using some really good university teams that have been successful in getting grants. And uh, and every time we didn't quite make it and they said, no, we want you to apply again. But but it's very competitive. And as it turns out, really, the only kind of NIH is a whole collection of institutes, as you know, and the prison funding mostly goes through the one having to do with with uh, substance use disorders. Right. If you want to get prison programming research done, it's almost got to be related to uh, to substance uh, use, substance abuse. Right. So, you know, we hope we'll get around and have the bandwidth again today to maybe create, uh, you know, a path to freedom relapse pro prevention program and try to get the research done that way. But it is really challenging for so many reasons. We did get a couple of brave brief clinical trials done uh, as part of those uh, grant applications. And we were able to show even, even just in a one month follow up that there was a, a lessening of of uh, of substance abuse use and so forth. But, you know, the funding to do the longitudinal studies and, and then finding out how when people are released from prison to stay in touch with them. And yeah, I mean, so there's so many challenges going into prisons and and also there's a lot of difficulties that are various that should be there because in the past there has been uh, very abusive research done on adults and probably you too in prison settings. So there's a lot of controls around privacy and protection these days. So it's a challenging area, but it just really needs to happen because I think in order for, uh, you know, policymakers and funders to really get behind mindfulness-based prison work with adults and youth, they, they want to see the evidence. And so Right. Uh, somehow we got to get there. And you were pointing uh, pointing us in a really good direction there. So um, I think, you know, we're kind of near the end of our time, but you kind of pointed to this with this need for longitudinal research around what happens when people are released. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about post-release work. Now, there's there's very little successful post-release work of a mindfulness nature in this country. I mean, I know there's, there's a wonderful uh, Zen teacher woman in St. Louis that has a kind of a post-release program of, of a bakery she started and, and bringing uh, people who are practicing mindfulness and Zen into working in a bakery. But there's there's been very little. And I'm curious, you're probably seeing youth go in and out of the system in lots of different ways. So I'm curious, even there at a local level where you work, what are you seeing in terms of post-release and, and what's needed to kind of help if, 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 if young people are learning about mindfulness in a facility, how can we help them continue when they get out because there's so many barriers when they get out. I mean, people get out and they're at survival, right? Exactly. Uh, and they're, they're just trying to survive, get a job. They're getting back into their neighborhoods, back into their families. They're back into all the influences that are different. And so, you know, and, and often the places where they might practice mindfulness are geographically a distance or culturally right. distant or, you know, so I'm curious if you have any insights or what yeah, you can point I, us in some directions around all this. Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we work with, I would say the best thing that gives us a shot is having relationships that continue from the inside to the outside. And so, for example, we have some clinicians that do entry work in families, re-entry work in Family Spring that, um, you know, you're working with a, 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 a young person, you know, a 20 year old who's incarcerated for a couple, a year or something like that. And then when they get out, that same clinician, that same relationship is extended. And, you know, whether they continue the mindfulness work is really going to depend on how into it they were. 
but that clinician is still going to be there to give them those opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that really is one one of the pluses, one of the pros of kind of the new telehealth Zoom world, whereas before it was hard to stay in touch, you know, and it was hard to um, maintain that relationship. Now, at the very least, it's easier to stay in touch. We still try to do in-person when when they get out. But if they move to a different city because of safety reasons or gang reasons or something like that, we can actually still stay in touch with them. So for us, that's the biggest, like continuing that same authentic relationship. That's the biggest shot we have to continue that work. And, and, and if part of, you know, for us, since we're delivering treatment, if, if part of their treatment plan was mindfulness or mindfulness-based programming in some way, um, then we would continue that on the outs. And so that's that's where we found success. It's still very difficult though for all the reasons you said. You know, we've we've worked with people that we've had very high hopes for. They've gotten out and they've gotten shot and killed, you know, and that's a very tragic situation when that happens, you know. And did they make choices that were probably not in their best interest? Yeah, some of the times. And some of the times they're just back in survival mode. They're back in that same neighborhood where there's all that violence happening. And it's so difficult to not get caught up in it, you know. So it's very hard. There's a lot of issues that opens up kind of like the public health, you know, issue of violence in the communities, drugs in the communities, all of the things that we're dealing with when we're trying to continue services. Uh, but we're still there to do it. We're still there to give give it a shot because, you know, whatever happens with those young people when they get out, we're, we're whether we're saying it explicitly or implicitly saying it, it's we're here, we're present, we're showing up because you're worth it, you know, um, and that's what we're trying to transmute to them. Well, I'm so glad you are. And, you know, I really it's so easy, I think, for those of us doing this work to sometimes, you know, start to feel a little hopeless. And, yeah. you know, the general cultural, social, societal situation, sometimes you're not sure if it's getting better or worse. And uh, and, you know, you're you're meeting people and working with people, but they're still dealing with this big system you have no control over. But I think we have to keep reminding ourselves that those human touches that we're making with each other are are priceless. Regardless of the the ultimate outcomes, but those human touches that we make with each other in this work uh, are priceless, and and we can trust that that on some level that's having a deep impact for our fellow human beings that that we're working with. And I'm so glad you're doing this work, and and this has been so incredibly uh, valuable, really a masterclass on how to do this work. And just really appreciate you and what you're doing, and reconnecting with you. And thank you so much for being part of the Prison Mindfulness Summit. Absolutely. It's been an honor. And um, yeah, anytime. I'm happy to have these conversations. It's been it's been great to reconnect. And people can find out more about your work at uh, again, it's uh, uh, myfamilyspring.com. Myfamilyspring.com is where our clinical organization is and center for adolescent studies.com is uh, our training institute. And we have a bunch of free course, free online courses that, that folks can take and learn more about this type of work for sure. Great. Well, I encourage people to check that out. So uh, Dr. Sam Himmelstein, thank you so much. Absolutely. Have a wonderful day. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. 
You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.